so I'd like to talk today about the nature of uh, changing your mind, how it is that we might think one thing and think a different thing later on, something of the structure of that. And uh, this talk is really born of uh, personal experience, as well as uh, listening to everyone else talk very loudly online uh, over the last however you fill in the blank of dates. So I want to ask, what, where's the line that separates knowledge from foolishness? What quality differentiates wisdom from mere education? We might provisionally say that wisdom is manifest by a flexibility of thought or an ability to change one's mind. The Elizabethan philosopher of sorts, Francis Bacon, said that the learned person always intermixes the correction and amendment of his or her mind with the use and enjoyment of it. But the unlearned person will hide and color their faults. It knows not what it is to descend into themselves or to call themselves to account. On the subject of changing your mind, I think everyone can readily recall some sort of moment or time in their lives when they learn something which is genuinely revolutionary. Something that was a eureka, an epiphany of sorts. Or an a, a time when an earlier opinion of yours looked foolish in retrospect. How could I have thought such things? When I was five years old, roughly, I really wanted to have communion on Sunday morning. Now, this tells you a little bit about me, at least five-year-old me. I'm an Episcopalian all my life, and every Sunday I was forbidden from getting the weirdly shaped cookie and what looked like grape juice to me. As you would understand, I love cookies and grape juice at five, so I wanted it. Everyone else could. My brothers could. My parents could, etc. Everyone got it. I wanted the cookie. But to get communion in my church, I had to speak with the priest of the church and make some sort of profession of faith, right? To understand what was happening. Now, you should know that the priest of this church was also my dad. <laughs> now, this story is not going where you think it is. Uh, so my dad, this priest, asked me who I thought Jesus was. And as a good priest's kid, I had a ready-made response. Jesus is the son of God. This five-year-old got it. But here's the thing. Five-year-olds understand a great deal. What they don't understand are homonyms, or for that matter, metaphors. Because I lived in the sunshine state and believed that Jesus was the thing that rose and set every single day on the horizon. In fact, I would stare at the sun as best as I could, hoping to see a little silhouette of a person inside that burning ball of gas, however many miles away. Now, in retrospect, my confusion makes perfect sense, actually. What do we say about Jesus? We say that he is the light of the world. If you see paintings or stained glasses of him, uh, they will often have a kind of sun and righteousness theme behind him. Uh, if you read the biblical story, he, where does he go after his resurrection? 
up. So my five-year-old self believed he ascended into this great burning ball of gas in the sky. I would always be looking for Jesus, staring outside at the sun. Now, one Sunday, I was doing this after church, and I was looking up, and someone said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm looking for Jesus. To which they responded, he'll be back soon enough, riding on the clouds. (laughs) Which didn't help. (laughs) It wasn't until I found a pair of sunglasses that I was able to stare at the sun long enough to realize that there wasn't a silhouette of Jesus in the sun. And you can imagine the disappointment my then six-year-old self must have felt, right? Uh, It's far less tangible nature of faith, right? Jesus isn't there. Where is he now, right? What I thought was true was, in fact, not. I changed my mind. I often wonder what the Magi thought as they approached Jerusalem, looking for the birth of a great king. They had expected Herod's palace to be filled with the echoes of a crying baby, but they heard nothing. Its magnificent stone columns and high ceilings were silent. There were no echoes. These wise men were wise enough to follow a star at the birth of a king, but they were seemingly unprepared for what they found. They had assumed that the capital was the birthplace only to find him born six miles due south, a king born not in a palace, but in a mere house, a king born to peasants. In the span of perhaps a few hours, what they thought to be true of kingship and kings in general was turned completely upside down. They didn't get to the house, we should should note, and withhold their gifts, right? Right? They get to the house, they see the, bo- the boy, and they fall down and worship him. And yet, changing your mind nowadays is rare. It's not really part of either everyday practice or our discourse. Uh, the Onion captured this, that wonderful news website, uh, perfectly well about four years ago with the headline, Weak-Willed Coward Changes Opinion After Learning He Was Wrong. <laughs> and a shocking display of utter spinelessness, 33-year-old coward Benjamin Dyer gave in and changed his opinion just like that. You, you know, I, he, here's what he says. He says, you know, I think I've come around to your way of seeing things. The weakling said, reportedly reassessing his viewpoint to accommodate new information, like an unbelievable wuss instead of doubling down on his previously held beliefs, like a real man. (laughs) Uh, More recently, The New Yorker uh, ran a cartoon of uh, a boxing ring with a man standing in the corner with his arms folded. And the caption read, and in this corner, still undefeated, Frank's long-held beliefs. (laughs) Now, when I talk about when I as I'm talking about changing your mind, what I don't want you to have to think about is um, mundane things, right? You go and you look at the menu and you had wanted a burger, but you look at the menu and you say, "Oh, I'd much rather have a salad." That's a 
that's a change. It's not the one I'm talking about, right? I'm talking about the more significant, deeply held things we think and are true about ourselves and about the world. I've recently uh, b- finished reading Philip Yancey's autobiography in which he recounts his childhood. Um, Philip Yancey is a Christian author. He's written tons of books, um, but the most famous of which I would say is What's So Amazing About Grace? And this is the story of his life. And uh, Philip Yancey's mother in this story, uh, presumably he's being truthful, is quite the character. Um, And this is what he says about her. He says, uh, Mother claims she hasn't sinned in 12 years. Longer than I've been alive. She follows a branch of the holiness tradition that suggests Christians can reach a higher spiritual plane, a state of moral perfection. Her bookcase is stocked with books describing this state, called the, quote, victorious Christian life. What he says about this later is, sinlessness guarantees she will win every argument with her, with us, her two sons, at least in her mind. It also guarantees that, like her own mother, she sees no need to apologize ever. Philip Yancey's mother, Mildred, had numerous reasons to apologize over the years, which he recounts in this book. Uh, She did not spare the rod from her children, to be sure. When Yancey's brother wanted to attend college at Wheaton College, that bastion of godforsaken liberal theology, Mildred placed an actual curse on her child. She would later disown her eldest son, not attend his wedding, not speak with him for decades. She even tells Philip who at this point in the story is 65 years old, that she wished she had an abortion. Even into her old age, Mildred was unyielding. She was always right and would cite the Bible in her defense. She never felt the need to apologize. Now, with this story of uh, Philip Yancey's mother, uh, it says two things. Uh, The first of which is, it highlights what's at stake. The cost of stubbornly holding fast to what you think, and the ability and the the way that it can alienate people. Uh, We're not always aware of how it can come across, right? Uh, Mildred held to her state of uh, righteousness, such that she never apologized. But this also, the second thing, is that it intrigues me about this story, is the way it illustrates how certainty and an inability to change uh, can uh, change your mind connects directly with concepts of self-righteousness. What we think can be said to be an extension of our identities. We might say that we have an opinion, like changing clothes or an object that we can hold in our hands, but it, it feels more, opinions feel more like they are essential to us. They feel like your hand rather than the glove. You'd rather take off a glove, but it's not that. People don't change their minds readily. Court-held beliefs are rarely given up without a fight, without pain or suffering. 
In his book, The Righteous Mind, the uh, psychologist Jonathan Haidt argues that when it comes to moral judgments, we think we are scientists discovering the truth, but actually we are lawyers arguing for positions we arrive at by other means. Now, if you don't believe that about yourself, uh, just note how it's true of every other person you know. (laughs) Opinions and beliefs serve our enterprise of self-justification. As as the theologian and historian Ashley Knoll has said, summarizing the theology of Thomas Cranmer, what the heart wants, the will chooses, the mind justifies. What the heart wants, the will chooses, the mind justifies. As one researcher put it elsewhere, reasoning was not designed to pursue truth. Reasoning was designed by evolution to help us win arguments. Reasoning can lead to poor outcomes, not because humans are bad at it, but because they systematically strive for arguments that justify their beliefs or their actions. Reasoning is not the engine, but the caboose. It comes at the end of what you've already desired to do, to rationalize and self-justify. Now, one of the, a great example of this kind of rationalizing enterprise, I find, in the book by Thornton Wilder called The Bridge of San Luis Rey. In it, it's a short book, in it, a bridge falls down. It's a rope bridge. Wilder says it snapped. It, when it snapped, it sounded like this plucking of a guitar string. And when the bridge broke, um, five people died. Nearby, there was a monk named Brother Juniper who heard the bridge falling. And his first thought wasn't about the tragedy and the sadness of the moment. His first thought was, I can now run an experiment. What on earth kind of experiment would that be, you might, you might ask? He wanted to prove that the right people, the wicked people, fell to their deaths, and the righteous people were saved. Now, Brother Juniper is an interesting character. Uh, When a pestilence hit the town years prior, he tried to keep a tally of those who had died and those who were saved and those who who got better to try to see whether or not they were either useful, pious, or, uh, or moral, or faithful. And he tried to create a tally for who the right people were and who the wrong people were and to compare that against who were saved. Um, During times of drought in the region, he would pray and then keep a tally as to whether or not rain would come. The number of times he prayed, the number of times the rain happened, to try to map out rationally whether or not there was a causal, an order in the universe. So he wants to run an experiment. He asks, why did, what, why did this happen to those five? If there was a plan in the universe at all, if there were any pattern in human life, surely it could be discovered mysteriously latent in those lives so suddenly cut off. What Wilder says, or at least the narrator says, is that Brother Ju- Juniper knew the answer already. He was not a skeptic. 
trying to prove God to himself. He knew it already and wanted to prove it for other people. He's the worst kind of scientist in that way. The line between knowledge and foolishness, between humility and imprudent certainty, cannot be crossed by the increase of learning. The path to wisdom cannot be trod through the accumulation of academic degrees or the pile of books read on one's nightstand. This is very easy to imagine when it comes to other people because we think other people are far more opinionated than we are. But of course, we know, I'm here to say, that's, I'm sorry, that's not true, right? No, what's needed is a recognition, on the, on the one hand, of the limited scope of our actual knowledge. What we are and are not capable of understanding, or do understand, and simultaneously, a recognition that there is elsewhere other knowledge we do not have. Uh, to illustrate this, I, I want to quote from the very end of T.S. Eliot's family, uh, play, The Family Reunion. At the very end of the play, the entire chorus comes up, and they basically give you the message of the play. So I don't even need to rehearse what happens in the play. I'm just going to tell you what they said. And here's what they said. He said, we understand the ordinary business of living. We know how to work the machine. We, we can usually avoid accidents. We are insured against fire, against larceny and illness, against defective plumbing, but not against the act of God. The circle of our understanding is a very restricted area, except for a limited number of strictly practical purposes. We do not know what we are doing, and even when you think of it, we do not know much about thinking. What is happening outside of the circle? What is the meaning of the happening? What ambush lies beyond the heather and behind the standing stone? What Eliot is, is pointing towards here is the incursion of something from outside of our carefully constructed, held, long-held standing beliefs. We need something that interrupts us. We need something which is inexplicable, an encounter with an other that does not cohere with our prior understanding, an incursion from beyond that resists conformity and intellectual manipulation. Not simply something new, but confounding. Wisdom is not greater learning, but unlearning. It is not an onwards and upwards cumulative life, but rather marked by death and resurrection. Now, in the New Testament, I have to get to it eventually, right? Uh, in the New Testament, uh, we, there are a number of stories where people change their mind, right? Uh, Peter changes his mind about 20 times. Paul changes his mind decisively at several points, uh, but the best example of this, of course, is his conversion. Saul, as you might know, uh, we are introduced to him at the very early part of the, of the Acts of the Apostles, in which he seeks letters from the high priest that he might capture Christians in Damascus and return them to Jerusalem for trial. 
having overseen the systematic imprisonment and execution of Christians in Jerusalem, Paul intends to extend the scope of his murderous mission beyond the walls of Jerusalem and into the farthest reaches of the Jewish diaspora. But on the way to Damascus, something happens. Right? Light shines from heaven, and an unfamiliar voice says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? The double vocative here, um, the Saul, Saul, has parallels to epiphanies in the Old Testament, such as Genesis 22, 46, Exodus 3, 1 Samuel 3. That right there is all for Chad Bird uh, to be impressed um, and to prove that I do love the Old Testament as well. Um, all of these parallels indicating the important and disruptive nature of what follows. But rather than responding with acquiescence, as the saints of Israel's history did, Paul unusually answers the voice's question with suspicion. Who is this voice? Paul does not answer by saying, here I am, but who the heck are you? If Paul had uh, persecuted uh, the Jews for blasphemy... On the road to Damascus, it is revealed that Paul, to Paul that this Jesus is none other than the Son of God, the very message Paul is said to have preached later on in the synagogues. What changes in Paul is a change in understanding of who Jesus was, namely the Son of God. Paul, the zealous persecutor of the church, in short order becomes the promoter of the church. Instead of Paul's original mission of persecution, Paul has a new mission of evangelism. Now, nothing in Paul's circle of understanding necessarily prepared him for such a radical incursion. The way Paul talks about his own life uh, elsewhere is what he thought was worthwhile was not. Uh, he, he uses a four-letter word. What I thought was important was not important. Um, now, that doesn't mean that, it, uh, uh, that the uh, Hebrew scriptures didn't point to Jesus by any means. No, but it's that Paul's understanding of them was radically reconfigured. Paul's knowledge, his self-sufficiency, his self-righteousness was all laid to bear on the Damascus Road. What he thought was blasphemy was, in fact, the Son of God. When the truth of who you are is shattered in front of you, the illusions you held uh, so dear were revealed to be illusions. You are on the path to wisdom. When an inexplicable, unexpected, and perhaps confounding word of grace is spoken to you. This is the path to wisdom. It is not a necessarily a straightforward path, but it is the paradigm of death and resurrection. Our life is not marked by an onward and upward trend. It is a constant learning and relearning and unlearning and uh, always returning to the newness of life in Jesus Christ which lays bare the, the false illusions we live under and offers to us a kindness, a word of grace and forgiveness, which we do not get everywhere else. 
in our rational capacities, we are machines of self-justification, building upon argument of argument upon argument about how we are always right and never wrong. The law says that we are wrong and the gospel says we are forgiven. If you want to know about how to hear from God in the scriptures, how to understand God in your life. Look for those touch points of death and resurrection. Look for those moments of disillusioning despair and comfort unlimited. And when you do, you will see the God who stands behind it all, the God revealed in Jesus. Because while Brother Jupiter, Juniper sorry, did not change his mind, Mildred Yancey did. Towards the end of her life, she had a conversation with her son about uh, where he lays it out for her. Mom, don't you see? This is what's happened to me and to my brother. And you've never once apologized for anything. Now, you, you, I won't say you have to apologize to me, but, my, but the brother that I have, he needs it. And he's your son. Four months later, she writes him a note and does just that for the first time in 50 years. Mildred Yancey had, a, had an experience of death and resurrection, one that evoked in the brother his own death and resurrection. It was not built by more knowledge, by more understanding, by compelling arguments that are just there to, to change people's mind. But it happened nonetheless. Thank you so much.